When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Cover Story, a podcast by New Books uh, Network about long-form journalism. My name is Aga Popenda, and today we're talking with David Schmaltz, who is a staff writer at the Monterey County Weekly, where his long-form pieces have won numerous awards from the California News Publishers Association, uh, including uh, first place for Enterprise reporting in 2014 for an expose he wrote about a local church's attempt to evict residents from 98 federally subsidized apartments. Those residents were able to keep their homes and the property remains the largest affordable housing complex on the Monterey Peninsula. Uh, hi, David. Hi. <laughs> He also did a lot of other reporting that uh, we will talk about. And um, other than four years he spent working and traveling abroad that we will also talk about, uh, David has lived and worked his entire life in California. Is that all correct? It is. Awesome. So can we talk about uh, why you decided to go into uh, to journalism in the first place uh, and uh, when you started for the first time to be active in the field. Okay. Um, well, I, I've always been um, drawn to to writing. Uh, when I was in college, at some point, um, I was taking a class. I think it was the American Novel was the name of the class, and I was reading a lot of contemporary fiction, which is something that in um, – my high school English classes, I, I, I'd never read. I only read the classics and whatnot. And, and once I got exposed to contemporary fiction and realized, um, you know, just what was out there and, and, and writing that really spoke to me in a way that a lot of the stuff I read in high school did not, um, I just realized that that was something that I really um, appreciated and like I loved more than anything was was good writing and and I had I had done writing in high school um I was a the the editor the sports editor for my high school newspaper and I had my own column in that paper and so I had done writing and stuff before but um I just kind of uh you know uh, the, the way that I was raised like everyone went out and became a lawyer or a banker or a doctor or or something like that. Like no, no one, you know, no one's going into journalism. And so it sort of took me a while to get to this place to sort of let go of all that, all the, the sort of expectations um, for what I should be doing. Um, and it took me a while um, to, to get there. Um, and ultimately I, I started freelancing for the weekly um, I don't know, around 2010 or 11. Mm -hmm. uh, before we go there, can I ask you, what was this uh, mind-blowing writing that you found so different? Uh, uh, can you give some names? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think the, the book that really, uh, you know, just changed 
everything for me was uh, Don DeLillo's White Noise. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just so different and so contemporary. I mean, that was a, it was a novel published in in the eighties. I, I can't remember if it was eighty four, maybe a, a couple years before that. But um, you know, it was sort of really about the sort of modern American condition, um, and and it. it and some of the senses in that book, you know, just really blew me away. And then, so I started to read more Don DeLillo and discover, you know, some of his other books. And, and then I realized there's this whole, you know, vast universe out there of, of really incredible uh, contemporary fiction and um, that I sort of did not know existed growing up. Mm-hmm. So uh, how old are you uh, when you're making this discovery? Well, you pretty much just said when the novel was published. No, you couldn't. Uh, that's a novel published in the 80s, so you could not have uh, read it first when it was published. No, so. no, yeah. So I was probably maybe 21 years old at the time um, okay. when I made okay. this discovery. All right. So, but, uh, you know, Dalila is a novelist. I'm not sure if he was ever active as a journalist. Actually, I don't know much about him, uh, about his biography, but uh, uh, you decided to... Uh, submit pieces pieces to the weekly instead of like uh, submitting short stories to the Harpers. And I'm sure you had a reason. <laughs> well, um, I, I, I did initially, I was, you know, drawn to fiction writing and um, I did take a uh, fiction writing course through UCLA extension and um, UCLA was the school that I went to undergrad in. So it was local to where I was. Um, but you know, then I, I wrote a screenplay at one point um, around 2007, eight, and uh, about what and what happened to it. So nothing happened to it, uh, but I thought it was a really, and still think it is a really cool story. Um, and it was about uh, based on a true story about um, a former uh, Cambodian child soldier. Um, who was, I believe, three years old when the Khmer Rouge took power in 1975 in Cambodia. And, mm-hmm. and um, he just had this incredible life story, um, fought for like four different armies, basically just getting captured and fighting on different sides. But after uh, all the fighting ended um, in the in the 90s, he, he went out and started... Um, taking all the, you know, unexploded ordnance uh, out of the, the forests. Uh, he would just go around and, and, and demine de- the, the landscape. Um, and that sort of became what he did uh, for, like, his life. And um, he started a museum next to CM Reap and uh, Anchor Watt. And um, it sounds like an amazing potential long-form journalism piece. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, um, it was a challenge to communicate with him because his English was not great. And so that w- that made it hard. And he also, um, you know, I spent a lot of time with him. Uh, a, you know, I went on demining expeditions in the Cambodian forest with him. Um, and that was pretty wild. Um, and went hunting overnight with him one time. And so Is that happening before you started your work for the weekly around yes uh, yes yes this all this all was happening like 2007 um and i started freelancing for the weekly i think 2011 was the first year that i 
I published something there. Um, and so the, in the reason that, um, you know, that whole thing panned out, cause at that point I was working for a nonprofit in San Francisco and, um, one of my best friends, um, was the managing editor at the weekly and he knew I was a writer and he knew I could write, um, cause he, he's read my stuff before. And so he encouraged me to start freelancing for the weekly. And so that's, that's sort of how that started, um, did you have a original beat that was assigned to you? Now I know that you cover Seaside. Well, when I was freelancing, when I was freelancing, I, I had no, you know, that was not covering anything specifically. And I was just sort of pitching ideas um, that I thought would be fun stories that I could write. Um, I wasn't like a hard news reporter per se uh, at the time, even though I did write on some, you know, very meaty topics. Uh, in some cases, and I did end up being a part of a, an award-winning um, story about a pesticide um, as a freelancer. I did some hard news reporting then. Mm -hmm. But so I, I was just sort of living my life in San Francisco and, and uh, you know, doing something for the weekly every now and then while I was doing my full-time job. Oh, I and see. Then, and then um, I ended up working for a startup. I got laid off. You know, after six months, they ran out of money. And then um, some came up with the weekly where they had uh, someone who was going on maternity leave for five months. And so they hired me to basically fill in and be uh, a staff writer while this person was on maternity leave. And then after. Do you remember your co first cover story in the weekly? Uh, well, I, I wrote two cover stories as a freelancer, um, neither of which I'm very proud of now. But um, but the first one that I did uh, when I was sort of on staff was um, I co-wrote a story about uh, a fire that broke out um, like a month after I got here in Big Sur, and that was a it was a really good story. I was really proud of the, the reporting I did in that um, story, and. Then, and then the next one was uh, about the decline of uh, the sardine population. Um, and, uh, and that does, was... Does pretty... it continue? Does the crisis continue? Yes. Yes. Yes, it does. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's, uh, let's talk about this story that we will link to this episode, uh, which is this, uh, uh, the story you got the award for in 2014. That sounds amazing. Can you just, uh, uh, make some sort of introduction for sure. uh, who never, so yeah, I, you know, got it. I got a tip that, uh, these residents at this, 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 housing complex is called Del Monte Manor and it was built around 1970. Um, you know, I reported the story years ago, so I'm going to try to not be too precise about, um, you know, certain details, but, um, and it was five local, actually six at the time, um, churches, nonprofits, you know, civic groups that teamed up together to build this, uh, this housing complex and um, 98 of the, of the units were, um, you know, subsidized by the, uh, by HUD, by the federal government. Mm -hmm. And 
I got a tip that this the church who basically was one of the original um, sort of founding entities of this um, complex and had was also co-located like the church is literally right next to it and um, and they kind of had taken over the management of the board of directors for this this uh, housing complex and it it had a very tumultuous history uh, you know in the aughts and. They brought in someone to manage uh, the complex who was totally unqualified and incompetent. And so what happened was they weren't able to properly fill out the paperwork to send to the federal government to get the subsidy money. Mm-hmm. That, you know, they, and so what happened is they, they just started going into massive debt because they weren't getting the federal money that they were supposed to be getting because the management couldn't fill out the paperwork. And so instead of solving that problem, what the leaders of the board who were, it was basically the leader of this church decided they were going to do was we're just going to kick all these people out onto the street and then change the, you know, the rents to market rate because we don't want to deal with the paperwork. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once the, the sort of contours of, of, of the story became clear to me. I knew it was, you know. So I, what was the source of the problem? Was it like one person's bad will, some sort of... Uh, I would say two people's yeah. bad will. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and, it, and it all stemmed because they were incompetent. That was the mm-hmm. that was the thing that was so maddening about it was um, they were incompetent. They couldn't get the money from the feds because they didn't know how to do the paperwork. So instead of, you know, making it right, they uh, decided they're just going to kick all these people out on the street. And I, I thought that was, you know, an outrage. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so who are your sources and also um, how this uh, particular church reacted when you started to snoop around? <laughs> well, so, so my sources were just, uh, were, mostly residents um at the complex um also though uh you know i um filed a free uh, a FOIA request to to get all the documents that that hud and you know uh, del monte manor had been sending you know back and forth and i got really some really good material from that FOIA request um and that was that was a huge uh piece of my may i ask you this uh uh, since the biggest dilemma with FOIA requests is that uh, often governments, local governments, agencies try to uh, delay it. So, so what was your experience with with uh, well, this? Is, yeah. This is actually the only FOIA request that it was like through like the federal government that I, I've ever done. Mm-hmm. My, it that it worked for you. It worked. And I think part of the reason why it worked um, so well was because the people that my contacts at HUD were very sympathetic to, um, you know, the cause of uh, the residents at this, at this complex and also to what I was trying to do as a reporter and exposing it. Uh, They were at an impasse with, you know, the management of this complex. And so they, they wanted, they were, they had, every incentive to give me all this, all the material, uh, you know, and, and, and so that, that helped me as well. Like I wasn't necessarily exposing them for something they were doing. 
it was the opposite. Um, and so I think that helped. Um, and I had some good people who were, uh, after they read the first story, like I did a, a news story, then then became a, a long form piece, uh, several months later. But once I wrote the initial story, all kinds of people came to me and, um, became sources. And one of the best sources I, that I had was, you know, this woman who was the, she was the head of like the residence, uh, association. And, um, and she was, you know, a woman who has, has won all these awards, um, you know, from, everyone in the community like that she, she's you know gotten uh, an award from the local congressman and the board of supervisors and the city of seaside for all the work she's done in the seaside community over the course of her life and so for her to become like a, a good source for me i mean it was that was critical because it was like this is not just some you know angry residents this woman really had a lot of credibility. Um, and mm -hmm. so, um, but, but yeah. And so I just, and I'd go to the meetings, uh, and, and just take notes and the church's reaction was, um, they, they did not like me. Um, but they also didn't respond to my calls. They would not comment on the story. Mm -hmm. They never did the whole time. So that was, uh, but in the end, after, you know, all the information got out there, um, the community stepped up and they, they made sure that that did not happen, that those people got to stay there. And so how quickly after, after, after the publishing of this story, uh, these things got resolved? Was it something that kept simmering for a while or... Uh, it, it got it, it. It was surprisingly quick how how quickly it was resolved. I, I believe my story, my car, the the cover story, I believe ran in. It was either late June or early July um, of 2014, and by September four. I'm sorry, but but sometime in August, so like a month or two later, the Seaside Police escorted the property manager off the property and she was forced to leave and they, they changed the locks. So it was pretty quick. Okay. So this is 2014 uh, and you are already a staff writer in the weekly. And I assume that uh, you moved uh, from San Francisco area uh, to Monterey full time by then. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, okay. Um, I thought that you would be a perfect person to talk about uh, local journalism because you've been, uh, you know, observing it for a while. Uh, and, you know, I'm talking about this whole uh, commentary about uh, local journalism dying, all those outlets dying. I know that this is not the case for Monterey County Weekly. Uh, and, uh, I wonder what do you think, uh, what do you think makes local journalism here in, uh, in Monterey, uh, possible? Well, I think we have, uh, in a very engaged community, um, 
uh, a lot of the people who live here, um, they, they're educated. They want to know what's going on in their community. And uh, there's not a big newspaper that serves this area. You know, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and, you know, you've got the, the Chronicle, which covers, you know, the greater Bay Area. And then you've got yet the Mercury News and the East Bay Times and all these different ones. But it, down here, there's nothing that really, you know, covers the local area that's a bigger paper. So you need the local papers. And, uh, you know, the Monterey Herald has been bought out by one of these vulture capitalist uh firms and has sort of been gutted um, and doesn't really produce in the way that it once did. Um, and so everyone turns to the weekly um, for their news. And uh, it's a free paper and a lot of people pick it up and read it. And therefore, I guess, you know, we're able to sell a lot of ads. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, it seems to be thriving. It's only gotten bigger since I've been at the weekly. It's amazing. And and what do you think uh, makes a, for a good cover story for the weekly, since weekly is being uh, published on a weekly basis? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it, there's always a, a, a great cover story. And I'm sure you've read millions of them. Well, I mean, for me, as a as a news writer, you know, I always want to if I want I want to have a really juicy piece of news um, if I'm going to do a cover story. And uh, and if I don't have that, I, going in, I probably think it's not going to be one of my best, you know. Um, but if it's something really juicy and important, like that to me is sort of the, the necessary ingredient for it to be a truly great story. Hmm. Um, okay. Because I can write, you know, it's not about how well you write it if if no one really cares about what you're trying to show them or tell them. Um, so do you remember most explosive cover stories in the weekly that like when the paper hit the streets, you guys started to have like tons of phone calls and everybody talked about it? Uh, yeah, something like yes, that. Yes, yes. Uh, there's, there's definitely one story like that that um, stands out. Um, a story that our colleague Mary Duane wrote. Um, I think that was also in 2014 um, about uh, corruption at the King City Police Department. And uh, it, she had really good sourcing and she basically found out about all these cops getting arrested, um, you know, by federal authorities, uh, early one morning uh, and, and she had, she had it all and it came out in the weekly. Um, and it was like, she broke this massive story in a cover story, which is so hard to do. Um, and so, you know, every other local news outlet out, out here was chasing, you know, her reporting for a week after that. Um, and it was, that was really, that was something. Incredible. Um, okay, I want to ask you about uh, your, uh, you know, uh, your experience as a, a consumer of long-form journalism. But before we uh, go there, I also want to uh, 
mention a couple of other stories of yours uh, that were particularly successful. Uh, uh, this uh, last remaining coastal sand mine in America. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So uh, there's this uh, talking about th- there. There's this uh, sand mine that no longer is in operation now. Um, in part because of my reporting, uh, I would like to think. But anyways, it had been here for for decades uh, on the coast. Uh, Monterey, along the southern coast of Monterey Bay, used to be a very, uh, have a lot of sand mining back in, up until the 1980s, um, I think there was like five sand mines shut down in the 1980s along the the coast of Monterey Bay. And um, sand mining, the the reason it's a problem is is because it, it, it creates coastal erosion. Basically, you're just, you're just mining the coastline essentially mm-hmm. um and that's you know especially problematic in in a time of you know rising seas and so when i saw you know, the sand mine still existed and this these local activists were were trying to you know sort of raise awareness about it i just realized that wow this is incredible i cannot believe this exists it's something that you drove by all the time with, without even really knowing what it was and thinking about it too much um, when you're driving along Highway One, and so I decided. I you know went to my editor and said I'm going to write a cover story about this, and I immediately knew it was going to be great because I knew that this sand mine should not exist anymore. Um, it's just so it just makes no sense, um, and uh, I knew I was going to be able to get what I needed to, to really write just a barn burner of a, of a story. And that story really made, sent shockwaves through the community. Um, that sounds incredible. What year was it? Uh, I, I think it was, it, it, it's hard if it, it was 2016 or 2015. It was right around, it was either like January 1st of 2016 or late. Yeah, I think it was like the first cover story of that year, I think is when it came out. Um, yeah, and since another story of yours is about, uh, well, you helped to stop this uh, development, the largest proposed development in Monterey County history <clears throat> that would have <clears throat> removed tens of thousands of uh, uh, coast life oaks. Um, uh, I can see a pattern here. There is definitely some sort of uh, environmentalism involved. Yes, definitely. I mean, and that was, you know... I, that was one of my beats at the time was the environment, but it's certainly something that I'm deeply passionate about. And, and I, and I try to work into all of my stories, um, and to some degree, uh, but, but yeah, so that, that story was, it was one of the reasons that my editors assigned me to cover the city of seaside is this development was in the pipeline and they knew that I was the type of reporter who could maybe (laughs) stop it, uh, uh, I don't know how else to put it, but I, and so, you know, basically the project was approved and it was, it was gonna, it was gonna happen. And then, well, it was on its way to approval. Let's put it that way. Um, it had sort of received all these approvals, but it, it wasn't yet. The final environmental impact report had not yet been approved when I wrote the story, but, um, I was just sort of racking my brain for, you know, what can I do to move the needle on public opinion about this project, which, 
I mean, probably would never have been built anyway. It would have gotten litigated to death. But so I got a tip about the guy who the developer and some of his, you know, legal problems with his own family. And so I did some investigation and found, you know, um, that he had, there was, there's definitely some, some meat on the bone for some court, uh, documents down in Los Angeles. And, um, the problem was though, is you can't get those documents online. You need, you need, at that time you, you needed a courier. We had to hire a courier to go pull these court files and copy and then send them to us. And so we did that. Like I, you know, I, I pitched that to my editor. I said, look, let's spend, you know, 300 bucks and get like this first, you know, sort of set of documents to see if there's something here. And so my editor agreed. And so we got the documents. And then once I opened them up, I was like, oh boy, we got something. And then, so um, at that point, I started going through the attorneys um, for this developer's sister, who then sort of provided me almost all the other documents. And then, um, and basically what, I ended up doing was just writing this huge expose about this guy uh, who um, does not seem like someone who, you know, a city would want to, um, you know, put their hopes and dreams behind this guy getting this thing done because mm -hmm. his history would demonstrate that he would, he would fail miserably and probably, you know, owe the city money. And so, um, yeah. It changed, it changed the way the public saw him and the project uh, to a measurable degree. And then uh, like a month or two later, like the city council overturned all of its approvals of the project and it died an unceremonious death. So pretty much your goal is to get a, a nice statue in the city of Seaside. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I don't honestly... Yeah, I don't want I, I don't want it to be about me. I, I'm I'm just I just I'm motivated by you know um, social justice, environmental justice, and uh, you know those are the things that really get me going. I, and I love writing, you know, and I, lo I love writing well. But um, the the stories that I really get most passionate about and probably work the hardest on are the ones where I feel like it matters. Mm -hmm. The story matters. So would you say that uh, that nonfiction for you is more for fulfilling than, let's say, fiction? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, and I, I've never, you know, I, I think the reason that I'm drawn to nonfiction is because um, I just, I guess I don't feel like from a fiction standpoint, I, I don't feel like I have stories to tell that are that are mine. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I'm that interesting. I don't want to try to convince anyone that I, you know, they should care about my stories. You know, mm -hmm. I just try to find stories out there that I think people would like. Um, and, you know, and so, I mean, for me, that's what it is. I just, I don't have stories pouring out of me that are, that are, that are fictional. Um, and so I got to go out and get the true ones. Okay. Fair. We should also probably say uh, uh, that, that since David became uh, a staff writer in Monterey County Weekly, he worked for uh, five and a half years, then took a break, and now he's back 
in the weekly uh, where we met as colleagues a couple of weeks ago. Um, and um, David, I also want to ask you about uh, you as a reader of long-form journalism, which I'm sure is uh, uh, your whole life. Uh, can we go, uh, you know, through like, you know, did you have like some sort of phases when you like as a teenager uh, read New Yorker religiously or whatever? What magazines were important for you? What writers were uh, important for you? What books were important for you? And who are your writing heroes, except of the little? <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say that I, you know, when I, when I was growing up, like um, I would read uh, you know, my dad subscribed to Sports Illustrated and Sports Illustrated used to have really good writing. Um, and so uh, I used to read that growing up. Um, and when I got to college, you know, I was just studying and doing all this and that. It was after I graduated college that I really got into reading um, journalism regularly. Um, I would read the the A section of the LA Times every day. Um I subscribed to it and I just, because I wanted to like learn. I was so thirsty for information about the world, you know, um, you know, I was like 22 and I was like, the world's so huge. I've hardly seen any of it. Like I want to know. And so I'm reading, um, everything I can, you know, it was a really big newspaper back then too. Um, but in terms of like magazine journalism, like I'd say the first magazine that I really started getting into was Harper's, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, and there's a lot of stuff I read in Harper's that I really liked, but ultimately I just kind of got off Harper's because <laughs> I just found it too depressing, honestly. Um, it just felt like it was, you know, kind of making me more angry and, and sad about the state of the world. This was like post nine 11 America, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so eventually I started just, uh, I canceled my Harper subscription um, as cheap as it was, and uh, and then started subscribing to the New Yorker, and I've been subscribing to the New Yorker for you know over a decade, and and that's where you know I've really I feel like you know that's reading that has helped me a lot as a, as a long form writer. Um, Do you have your favorite New Yorker writer? Um, my my favorite New Yorker writer. Well, God, I, there's so many I love, but. Mm-hmm. The guy, the guy who's, I think, is just a long form savant. I mean, he's just incredible. Uh, his name is David Gran, Gran with two N's. Um, but he, uh, I, I, for whatever reason, he hardly ever publishes any stories. Whenever he does, they're incredible. Um, but he wrote a really incredible book. Um, you know, I think now it's being adapted into a movie, but it came out, I don't know, four years ago called Killers of the Flower Moon, um, which I highly recommend to your listeners. I mean, that book is incredible and what an incredible piece of journalism it is. Um, and it's one of those stories and I don't want to sort of spoil it or anything, but it's one of those stories where you read it and you wonder how the hell did this not get reported already you know this is like a story that's almost a hundred years old um and it's just sitting there and uh this guy comes along and like suddenly you're like oh my god this is insane um 
And that's that's what David Grant does. He just finds these these crazy stories. And I don't know how he does it, um, but he's no one better at, at it than him. Um, so he's one guy I really like. Um, but there's a lot of people for the New Yorker I write, but I, I, I like. But one story that also I, I find is still so memorable to me is um, she won a Pulitzer for it, but Catherine Schultz, uh, her story about the really big one that was the headline for uh, an earthquake that's, you know, sort of coming in the Pacific Northwest. What an incredibly well-written piece that was. I actually pulled up a line from there because it's just such incredible writing. So she's describing how these, this forest uh, that she's paddling through on like a canoe, how all the trees died because seawater came in um, after this earthquake made the ground subside. And so like basically this forest suddenly just dropped like below sea levels, sort of how it happened. Um, And she writes, leafless, branchless, barkless, they are reduced to their trunks and worn to a smooth silver gray as if they had always carried their own tombstones inside them. I mean, that's just that's just great writing right there. Delilo so, good. Uh, so, you know, that th- there's, there's definitely pieces, you know, like always, always in the New Yorker that, that really jump out to me. Um, but, you know, I would also encourage people who, you know, want to, I mean, John McPhee is great, is a great uh, writer. And I don't know, I don't know, God, the guy is immortal. He still writes for the New Yorker. Um, but, uh, he's, you know, he's written for the New Yorker since like, I don't know, the fifties or or early sixties. I mean, he's just been around forever. One of my favorite stories ever is a story he wrote back in the seventies called the forager, um, about his, like, you know, two weeks that he spent with this guy who was like the, you know, the sort of preeminent, like wild food forager in America, um. And it was that was a really fun, fun read. Um, but I encourage, yeah, John McPhee. Amazing. Um, sorry, I'm sorry. I got, I got interrupted by a roommate. Um, so, so yeah, uh, those uh, are the those are the people that I love the most. I mean, I. I I could go on and name more names. No, I, I think this is more than enough. I will check out both of those writers. I'm familiar with the names, uh, uh, but uh, that definitely uh, requires more exploring. And uh, yeah, well, thank you so, so much for your time. I think that I uh, ask all the questions that I had uh, prepared for you, David. And uh, thank you so much for your time. You are welcome, and thanks for having me. <laughs> and uh, uh, David Schmaltz is a staff writer at the Monterey County Weekly. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>